Today I have a pretty special treat for us. I'm going to be sharing with you all a conversation that I got to have with my friend JR regarding Native American spirituality. And the reason why it's so special is because JR and any Native American person for that matter doesn't owe us anything. Us meaning the colonizers, the people who have invaded Native American land, the people who have a history of seeking to erase Native American culture from America, which is something that is still happening today. So it is a high honor to have JR here with us to share a very sacred thing. So I personally am very thankful for the conversation that I got to have with them. And for those of you who I am lumping into the category Native American, if you don't like the label Native American, I just want to apologize. And uh, that is just the term that JR and I agreed to use for the use of this conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to let JR introduce himself to you. People call me JR. Um, I was raised in a culture that always taught me to introduce myself first in my native tongue. So let me do that first. And what that loosely translates into is, hello, I am, or they call me JR Lily. I am part of the Red Rent Water people. I am born for the Cliff Dwelling people. My mother's father is part of the Red Rent Water people as well. And my father's father is part of the Edgewater people. Hmm. And so that's my introduction. And uh, the context of that is that's, um, that's my name and my clans. My clans are my identity and who I am. So. Born and raised on the Navajo Nation, which is the largest Native American tribe in the United States. And so in the context of my tribe, we always introduce ourselves by our clans. But the clans tell us who we are. So when I say I am part of the Red Rent Water people, clans are passed down matrilineally through the mother. So I am who my mother is. She is mm. who her mother is. So I am everything that I do is my mother and hmm. all the females in my family. And so anything that I do, it's not because I, as an individual, J.R. Lilly, did this great thing. I graduated college. I helped the needy. I do good service. It's not because I'm a good person. It's because I was raised right. And the credit goes to my mother for that and hmm. my grandmother. And so when you ask me who I am, that's the, that's the thinking behind it, at least. Yeah. I like that. Um, I like that because in Western culture, we always introduce ourselves just, you know, first and last name. And then we always tell, like, whoever we're introducing ourselves to what we do. That's pretty much the first thing. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe not. It's not like I say, hi, my name's Drew. I am a uh, 
podcast producer or something, but that's that's the first thing that comes up in conversation. Whereas for you, it's very much tied to your family and your your mother, which is also another cool thing, I think, because in a lot of ancient culture, um, they talk about the father, and yet your culture talks about the mother. So I think, yeah, that's so, just an observation, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so uh, part of our protocol of introducing ourselves um, is all like building up the context of where we're at. So when I introduce myself, it's it's to build up the context of what we can do. So when I introduce myself to you and you introduce yourself to me, then we kind of know how we can then further engage. Mm-hmm. Does my family like your family? Are we related? Um, is there something that's that we should know beforehand? So before we, so it's always relationship before business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to know all that because when I go back to my family, my grandma, they're going to say, "What did you do today? Who did you see? Who did you hang out with?" And I say, "Like I met Drew Swanson." I'm like, "Oh, who's his family? Where's he from?" And then she will be the one who says, "Oh, Drew's grandma." actually is like this and she will know all your business about it hmm. and, then, and then in knowing each other then we know how to like if we can trust you so then like if you're going to make a business deal with me further on how do i know i can trust you oh you come from a good family you were raised right we know who your hmm. mother is and so it builds up that trust yeah and so in the same spirit of that um before we dive further into the conversation um, I also want to acknowledge that where we're at right now, um, because we indigenous people always operate in a, a framework where we're, there are guests and there are hosts. Mm-hmm. And although I am indigenous to this land, to this continent, I am not indigenous to this area. So they would say the ground here doesn't know my footsteps so i'm i'm a guest um similar to you Mm. and if we're if we were back in my homeland within the four sacred mountains of the Diné, i would be the host and we would operate totally differently i would be Mm -hmm. welcoming you to this Mm -hmm. land um but since we're not we're both guests we want to acknowledge in the context of this conversation is happening on the historical sites of several different tribes, the Multnomah, the Chinook, the Malala, the Kalapuya, the the Kalets, and many other different tribal nations that made their um, home here for generations. Mm -hmm. So we want to acknowledge that, you know, this particular area, we're just a few miles from a fishing village called the Near Chukiku, which was a Chinook fishing village that was documented when Lewis and Clark came across these areas. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So as we shift the conversation into spirituality, um, which is what Project Matters series is currently on, uh, we're very interested in what Native American spirituality is. Um, just some framework here is what you are about to share a blanket statement for all Native American spiritual belief, or is it unique to 
the Navajo Indian tribe? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. How you how how do we frame this, right? Um, I don't claim to know all spirituality of all the different tribes. Every tribe has their own way, their own worldview and systems and sacred colors and ceremonies. And I, I don't know them all. And I don't necessarily have the authority to speak about them. Mm -hmm. So my Lakota friend who, um, they live, you know, live in teepees and they have the medicine wheel and have teachings around the, um, the different poles that are in the teepee and how it's set up. And I have, I have no authority to speak about them. I can share you what, share with you what I know about them, what I've heard and that because I have relationships with these folks and then I've been, um, adopted into some of these Lakota families, I can share with you what I know, but I don't necessarily have the authority to speak about it. What I have the authority to share and speak about um, is my own tribe. My, I can speak about the Diné, I can speak about Navajo, and uh, in context of the family of what I, I, I grew up with, hmm. what the ceremonies we have, our worldview, and that might give a glimpse into what folks would call indigeneity. Um, what some folks would call like earth spirituality. Uh, it might give you a better picture because there's some elements that would, that we would share amongst all our tribal spiritualities. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is what you share, what you're sharing is going to be un mostly unique to your tribe, but there are some, over there is some overlap. Um, there are some elements that there are elements that we do, share. Yeah. That you share. Okay, um, so I am somebody who knows nothing, very little. Very obvious, yes. <laughs> about uh, Native American spirituality. Do you, do you, by the way, do you prefer Native American or indigenous, or does it matter? Or is it the same thing to you? To me, I have come to terms with whatever you're comfortable with, I'm okay with um, whatever word you choose and you verbalize is probably going to be wrong. And I've learned to live in a world where a lot of people are wrong about me and wrong about my community. And if I try to correct every wrong thing, everyone is th thinks and says about me, I wouldn't have time to enjoy my life. So certain things I'm like, just be wrong because I'm more worried about having the, the conversation that goes down the road. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to argue over semantics of is it First Nations, Native Americans and everything. Some people think it's a big deal. To me, it's not. I want to have a conversation about the deeper issues. So whatever word you're comfortable with, I myself use them interchangeably and okay. I've adopted the language of the colonizers to better, um, just to have the conversation. Okay. You know, if you want to use um, the words of your um, constitution, you know, the Declaration of Independence, which refers to us as, what is it? Um, the Declaration of Independence refers to us as savages. 
Yeah, I certainly don't want to use that one. Merciless Indian savages is the actual terminology. Which yeah. is, by the way, that is striking that that's in our Declaration of Independence. But yeah. um, and your country celebrates it every Fourth of July. Yeah. Just to remind the rest of us where we are. Hmm. I'll use Native American just because indigenous is hard to say for me. Um, <laughs> so coming from someone who knows nothing about Native American spirituality or very close to nothing, I'm interested in a 10,000 foot view of your spirituality just to start off the conversation before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of it all. Um, so just for our audience, uh, this is like an example for me, if you were to take Christianity from a 10,000 foot view, you could say something like the God of the universe created everything and he wants to be in loving relationship with his creation. So he has invited his creation into that. So that's a very succinct 10,000 foot view of an interpretation of Christianity. So my question to you is, what is a 10,000 foot view of Native American spirituality? Yeah. Thank you for asking, Drew. And uh, first want to address a few things. I mean, one, just about the question. I'll share this story. So there was a, there's a story that was told to me around the time when the Spanish conquistadors were first coming over in ships and they were starting to settle into the, uh, what we now know as the Caribbean islands and they were engaging in indigenous people there. And there's this story that's shared around when the conquistadors landed on the beach and they're looking and they're meeting indigenous people for the first time. So the conquistadors are standing there in their armor with their priests and coming off the boats. And they're looking at the situation and they're seeing these indigenous people meeting them on the beach. The indigenous people, you know, are coming from their villages and um, coming to address and again looking in the context of who's the host and who's the guest. Mm. And they're coming and they're seeing them. So it's a situation, right? Yeah. Human beings on the beach. The conquistadors coming from a Western perspective, a Western point of view, and the way they interpret the world at the time, look at the indigenous people and ask the questions, do these indigenous people have souls? Because if they do have souls, then it's our Christian duty to evangelize them, to get them saved and like further expand the church. Mm -hmm. um, but if they're not, if they don't have souls, then they can do what they've done with other people and dehumanize them. Then they're like animals. Then, um, then they don't have rights to their land and they don't have uh, human rights. They can be treated as less than human. Mm -hmm. And so they're asking the, the, in their perspective, do they have souls? Because obviously they have bodies. We can see this, we can touch them, we can interact with them. 
obviously that's just how it is. Yeah. Whereas the indigenous people who are coming up to the scene are asking, is what we're seeing here, do they have bodies? Because obviously everything is spiritual. Everything is sacred. Everything has life to it. Mm -hmm. Is what I'm seeing in front of me, because we've never seen and interacted before, um, is this a human being? How do I know that what I'm engaging with here is not a deity, is not a demon, a spirit? Is it not um, someone sacred that I need to interact with in a certain way? Because everything has a spirit, but not everything has a body. And so it's the same situation. But because of their culture and their worldview, they're interpreting it different. So they're looking at the same situation and they see it differently. Hmm. And so when you're asking me, somebody looking in from 10,000 feet away, what are they seeing about my religion and my spirituality and everything? Mm -hmm. If somebody has seen it from a Western point of view, they would see things and they would expect they're trying to fit what I'm doing. They see my actions and, and they, they try to interpret, they try to make sense of it. Yeah. When the religion wasn't made for them to make sense for them, it doesn't make sense in their worldview because so just some differences between an indigenous a native worldview and a Western colonial worldview. So colonial Western pe people see things linear. So mm -hmm. see things that there's a past, present and future that can go in a straight. Yeah. Or indigenous people see things circular. We've been here before. We'll come back here again. If it doesn't work out this time, we'll just do it next time better. So it's mm -hmm. very circular thinking. Yeah. Um, a European view is very, compartmentalize so in a western view you can you, you can take things apart you can say this is your spiritual life this is your family life this is your work life this is your personal life and then you have individualism whereas me as an individual separate from my community separate from my family mm -hmm. i can have my own personal relationship with my savior jesus christ right and those concepts don't translate to an indigenous worldview so we don't we we're not compartmentalized everything is interconnected mm -hmm. we're not individuals we're community very community so as i introduce myself i am who my mother is and who her mother is it is in everything that i do we're different community bodies interacting and working together not individuals working together mm -hmm. and so some of those things don't translate over. So when I when I'm talking about my spirituality, I talk about it from my perspective and how I see the world. Mm -hmm. And that may or may not translate well into a into a Western worldview. Okay. So understand that. Yeah. Um, understand that there are A lot of big differences and I would um, say one of the biggest differences is 
in the Western world, you have this experience called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, when the Enlightenment happened, you know, in a, in a simple version story of it, is that um, we can now, mankind can now figure everything out. We can study, and we have different sciences to help us interpret the world around us. And therefore, there's no more mystery because we can now know everything. Um, so different sciences evolved from that and, and, and you know, technology and all that kind of goes out. But when it comes to, again, Europeans compartmentalizing, and now there's the science of studying and knowing God or theology. Theology is a science to try to understand God and relation, and that's the context, and that's the lens Western people try and see things through. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make room for my indigeneity. What it does is like it puts us in a category of savages, pagans, um, witches, mm -hmm. anything you know that's not as evolved. Yeah. And so. That's a big thing, and when I, most of us around the world, who, most of our spiritualities never have this thing called the enlightenment. So there's so much room for mystery, yeah, and unknowing things. So we don't have to know everything. So you, we, if you listen to our stories and listen to our creation story, and then you listen to coyote stories, and then you listen to, you know. Um, the, about the medicine people, these all these different things. Like, how does that work out chronologically, or how does is Coyote a god or a deity, or um, is he a trickster in 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 this way, or how is like what is there a good and bad, or what's the problem? All these different questions, like mm -hmm. these things, just don't make sense to us because they don't translate well. So that's like, you know, all that sort of pre-context story to go into the story of like, let me tell you about, let me tell you about how I engage the supernatural. Okay. So I'll start with my creation story, which a creation story, the Navajo, the Diné creation story is a long story that can be told over days. This is the quick and dirty version of it. Mm -hmm. So okay. there were essentially four or six worlds. And in the first world, which we know as the black world, was dark, and that's where first man and first woman were created, as well as other different um, nations, beings. Context I'll add into here is that we also don't see ourselves man as different from the rest of nature in the world. Mm -hmm. um, most tribes don't even have the word for animal because mm. animal is not separate from man. Mm. There's just different wow. nations and how we coexist amongst each other. Mm -hmm. So there was a few uh, bugs and critters that were in the first world. And then they found out it wasn't good to be in the first world. So they moved into 
the second world. And then they met more other nations. I believe that's where they met the bear, um, coyote, and um, ba um, bobcat, and mountain lion. And, so they, and then that world wasn't doing so well. So they moved on to the third world. And then they, you know, as they're going on, more and more beings, more and more nations are joining this crew. Mm -hmm. And they arrive in this world, which we call the glittering world. Mm. And we emerge from underneath and we came up uh, within the four, sac four sacred mountains. And when we emerge, there was monsters there were giants and there was horn monster and bird monster um and so we would we would arrive here and we start settling kind of uh and anytime we would grow in numbers the monsters would come and gobble us up hmm. so we couldn't grow uh, and one day there was this first man and first woman heard this baby crying on top of a hill so first man goes up there and he finds this baby, no parents. And so they bring this baby down and says, it's a little girl. And this girl grew up so fast that by the time she was four year old, essentially when she was 16 years old. And so they called her changing woman. No one knows where changing woman came from, but she came to us. And one day when changing woman After she's had her ceremony, um, she's uh, arrived in puberty, um, which is a ceremony within itself, mm -hmm. which we can get to later. Um, she falls asleep, and then she wakes up, and she's pregnant. And uh, she gives birth to these twins, Monster Slayer and Child Born of Water. And these two twins later grow up to find out that their father is the sun god. And so they make this heroic journey with the help of some deities like Spider Woman and other um, friends they find along the way. Mm -hmm. um, and they journey to their father, the sun. And when they go there, um, their father gives them weapons so they can go return back to the Danette, to the people, and kill the monsters so that people can grow. Mm. And... And so that's what they do. They come back and they kill all the monsters. And when they kill all the monsters, their job is done. And so there would take the, now it's time for the, the Diné to take changing woman and twins, um, to the sea, to the ocean, to there they can rest. And, um, but before changing woman leaves us, she takes dirt off of her own body for sweat. And she creates the first four clans. Mm. And those first four clans is how the Navajo people got started. And they, and as long as we're within the four sacred mountains, there's different, different deities that watch over us. And then there's teachings. Um, so we have different deities might be the best word for it. Okay. Gods um, that instruct us how to live a good life. And so there's all sorts of teachings around childhood, manhood, or adulthood, womanhood, and elders. There are 
ceremonies in which we engage the world around us in those things that are sacred. Mm-hmm. And the Navajos, we have this phrase, Hojonoko Hasling, which is, in beauty may I walk. Hojon, beauty, the best word, it, it, it translates to, to beauty. But if you were to really take a dive into the word, it means balance, it means serenity, it means in peace all around you. Okay. Much similar to the, uh, the Jewish word shalom. Mm. And so to walk in hojon, to walk in beauty, and to live this good life is how we're supposed to be. So it's not just about spirituality. When we, you wake up in the morning, you greet the sun, and you say your morning prayers. But it's how you treat your neighbors, it's how you treat your family, it's how you engage in, um, with everyone and everything around you with the what some tribes call the one-leggeds, which are the trees, the plants, you know, those different nations. Mm. The uh, um, other nations around us, the you know, the elk nation, the wolf nation, the salmon nation, how we interact with them. Yeah. Hmm. And how we interact with those who have gone before us. In a Navajo context, we don't communicate with our ancestors. Other tribes do. We don't necessarily, we allow them to rest. And as they've moved on, they go into the, the great mystery of it all. Mm-hmm. And we allow them to rest. So we don't engage with our ancestors, but we engage with um, different beings around us. Okay. So a, a story, I'll, I'll end on this story. One day my grandma was sick and we, we called a medicine man. And the medicine man said that there was a snake wrapped around her. A snake had come to visit and wrapped himself around her. And so we were going to do a ceremony in our, in our tribe we call sand paintings. So we create sand paintings. And so we were going to create a sand painting of a snake. And then we we're going to sing songs and we we're going to thank the snake for coming and reminding us of our humanity. Hmm. And thank it bringing our family together and reminding us how important our grandma is mm-hmm. and tell the snake you can continue on your journey and so the snake wasn't good or bad the snake just was hmm. the sickness wasn't good or bad it just was and it's a part of how we engage it and how we engage the supernatural and how we engage the things all around us hmm. So that's probably like some stories I might, in response to how would I interpret our spirituality and how I engage with the world around me. That was a good story to to tell because I learned a lot through that. Um, So these monsters that you mentioned in the creation story that were eating the people were they also 
So, so they're eating the people so that uh, people couldn't grow and thrive. Were they also eating uh, all creation, like the animals, the bugs, everything? Were they hindering? My main question is: Were they hindering everything from flourishing and being in balance, or was it just humans that they were oppressing? In the stories that I've heard, um, these monsters were mainly eating us as human beings, okay. which is why we had to interact, why mm -hmm. we had to um, engage in such. It's why, like, our nation, like, you know, some would call us two-legged. It's why two-legged, why human beings had to interact and engage the monsters, not another nation engaging them there are in these stories where um like the like prairie dog came and helped us out helped the twins and their and different other nations came to our aid we kind of worked together in it mm -hmm. but primarily it was engaged it was in a simple term it was our problem so what, why we um, had to deal with it. Okay. What I kind of got, well, I guess I see balance as a big part of what you were talking about. That was mm -hmm. like a general, a theme, general yeah. theme within uh, the, the spirituality. So... I guess were the were the monsters against balance? Were they more just interested in consuming human beings just for their own good? Um, I'm I guess I'm I'm asking where the idea of balance originated from within your spirituality. Cool. Yeah. I, so I get the question. Mm -hmm. I have some stories. As a any good Native American will do, right? You ask a question, I'm not going to give you a direct answer. I'll share a story. You'll figure it out or you won't figure it out. Okay. So I would say, I don't know how unbalance originated. Because I don't know if we've ever been in balance. I don't know if, I think there's maybe times we're more in balance than not. And a, unbalance Things that cause unbalance come from a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it comes from monsters. So currently on our reservation, uh, and we're in the middle of a global pandemic, the COVID-19 virus is out there and it's definitely disproportionately affected Native American tribes um, more so than most. Mm -hmm. And our tribal elders are calling this COVID-19 virus a monster, mm -hmm. a monster that's devouring our people. Hmm. And we have to fight it with being responsible and with taking care of each other in good ways, which includes social distancing, washing our hands and the vaccine, all these things, right? And it's causing an unbalance in our community because people mm -hmm. are dying People are being affected by this mm -hmm. and it's throwing off. Um, they say when an elder dies, 
a library burns to the ground because it says so much stories and songs oh, of wow. our traditions of our people is gone. Yeah. And so it's definitely throwing us out of balance. At the same time, it's bringing us, it's like, like I said, with, I shared with my the story of the snake with my grandma. It's reminding us how important life is. It's bringing us close together. It's teaching us to calm down, slow down, and that we don't need to live in this fast-paced world, that we can stay home and be with our families. Mm-hmm. So it's not, the monster itself isn't good or bad. It's there. The COVID-19 virus isn't good or bad. It's there. We recognize it. Death, old age, different diseases. They're not good or bad. They're just there. They throw things out of balance, and we have medicine to bring us back to balance. Hmm. And it's important for us to remember that human beings also cause unbalance. Mm -hmm. So I have a friend who um, shared with me this story. A long time ago, human beings were out of balance. They were doing bad things. They were were hunting and, and killing without putting tobacco or an offering down. They were not being good neighbors with the world around us. Mm-hmm. And so the, what we might call the animal nations got together and they had this council meeting around what do we need to do about these human beings? These two leggeds are, if we allow them to continue, the world will be unbalanced. And what do we need to do about it? It came up with different plans and strategies, and it wasn't until Little Caterpillar came, and he said he had this plan, and they agreed with it, and they went forward with it. And the plan was that to create a disease to be released into the world, hmm. and the disease wouldn't hurt anyone except the human beings. So the human beings started getting sick, and they started dying off. And then another council meeting was held by the one-leggeds, the trees, the plants, the flowers, all got together and they said, this isn't good. We can't let the human beings die off. Hmm. And that's when what we now refer to as the medicine people came forward. Sage, tobacco, um, corn pollen, uh, cedar, different medicines we use today. Mm-hmm. They came forward and they said, we will give up our lives to help the human beings get better mm. and bring bring some balance back. Yeah. And so we're very thankful for the, med- the medicine people. And we still use them today. We still thank them and honor them. And so to bring us back into balance because human beings throw things off balance. Monsters throw things off balance. But there's things that we can do to bring things back into balance and to live in Hojon together. Hmm. And just so our audience knows, um, the way I was using balance, and I'll check with JR if this is how he would define balance, but sustainability, making sure that everything that is is preserved and doesn't die off. Um, and I guess just overall human flourishing, I heard JR talk about 
getting sick, you know, that throws someone off balance too. So is that how you're using the word balance? Yeah. As well? I, okay. I would, I would say that gets added. Mm -hmm. It may not cover the whole story, but we don't have time to tell the whole story about it. I think you, we're, we're on the same page. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned that the gods help you live rightly, basically, um, or you seek their wisdom um, to live rightly. Is the theme within living rightly or morally, is balance at the center of that? Making sure that we preserve the world, um, making sure we're not harming others, um, other... Yes, yeah. but it's... it's um, so there's a lot of preventative things in there, in our teachings, in our understandings around, if you do these good things, you'll live a good life. There is that, yes. Okay. But it also recognizes the flawedness of our world and the flawedness of our ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so when we cause harm to somebody, and I say something that offends my brother, what do I, how do I bring that back into balance? How do I restore that? Um, and so if I said something that offended my brother, he can come to me and put tobacco down and then we're going to have a conversation about it. Hmm. And then we can reconcile and we can bring restoration to it. Um, and whatever that, the form that causes, it's not a simple, I've done you harm and then I just forgive you and forget. There has to be something that comes of it. Yeah, some action to follow up yeah, with it. Something that brings justice to the situation. Mm -hmm. This is more just an observation, but I just find it really beautiful that you you talked about the trees, the one-leggeds, mm -hmm. and things like tobacco, just very, I don't know, you would classify those things as nature within Western uh, thought, I guess. And I find it very beautiful that they stood up for human beings where we rarely stand up for them. Def I mean, it sounds like y your people do more than us. <laughs> That's ingrained in your spirituality. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one, when we say we, we as human beings globally are not doing good to Mother Earth right now. Um, I think we as an indigenous people, I believe is 80% of the biodiversity of the world is being protected by indigenous people on with our treaty rights and with our climate action activism and different things like that. It's like Native Americans and indigenous people around the world are leading the charge for some of these things, hmm. you know, the stopping the pipelines and um, stopping the deforestation and how do we rally against these things to then bring balance. So I think we are trying to live in balance with everything. Not to say that everyone's like that. I think not all indigenous people are climate action warriors because there's a lot of people who are hurting and have other priorities. Mm 
Yeah. But I think as a whole, like indigenous people, because of its part of our spirituality, part of our stories, this is, um, it's not simply a resource that's being harvested and used. It is another nation that we're sharing this world with. And when you harm our brother, when you harm our family, our relative, then it calls me to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So the worldview and the framework helps give us reason to take action. Yeah. So there is a element of communing with ancestors. You mentioned that you let them sleep or rest mm -hmm. because they, I guess they did their thing on earth. Now they're in a different place, but there is an element of communing with them. Is that correct? And are you able to commune with them? So my tribe in particular, Navajo Diné, we don't communicate with our answers. We let them rest, as you mentioned. Okay. Other tribes are very engaged with their ancestors. So as I mentioned, like my Lakota friends, when they're having a sweat lodge ceremony, they invite their ancestors to come in and talk with them and share wisdom and share knowledge and help them give direction and guidance on how to live life. Mm -hmm. I think ancestors, as if we're, if we're framing it in just human being ancestors is one category to look at it. I think there are other ancestors in fact, if we define ancestors as like maybe older beings in the world that can give us guidance and understandings because it's part of our family, it's part of our um, Navajo, we use the word ke. Mm -hmm. um, Lakotas would use the word toyoshbae. So it's part of this fat, large family of the older beings. Mm -hmm. Are they alive? Are they dead? We don't know. Uh, they sleep. So like in a sweat lodge ceremony, they bring in these, they, they put these rocks in the fire and they heat them up. So it's like lava rocks. And so they like heat them up. So they're glowing red before you bring them into the lodge, which is this dome. Uh -huh. um, it's like filled with blankets. It's kind of packed in there. And you bring these rocks in, you pour water and just steam. It's like a, like a sauna almost as someone look at it. Yeah. Um, and it's part of a ceremony of prayer and songs, different um, rituals and practices we have in there. The story is that we're waking up this ancestor, this rock, hmm. who has been alive for millions of years. And so he's asleep and we're waking him up, we're waking grandfather up and so that we can tell him our problems. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I, you know, I, I jokingly say I'm an old man. I'm 33 years old, right? So I have 33 years of life on this earth. Mm -hmm. My problems that's ruining my day or ruining my year even, like it's a really bad season in my life. My problem that's destroying my world, when I'm telling my ancestor, my grandfather, this rock, who's been alive for millions of years, my problems are nothing. 
to grandfather. Mm-hmm. And he can easily take that for me. Mm-hmm. He can easily help me out. It's what's a big problem for me is not a big problem for him. Mm-hmm. And I'm engaging in this ceremony with him. If we look at ancestors in that way as well, my tribe makes there's room for that. There's, it's part of our ceremony. We look at we look at some of these ancient ones and that bring us guidance and help us as well. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned that your tribe does not wake them up, though. Your tribe would not be the one that heats the the rocks up. Well, I say with, and... with a our tribe doesn't do it with human being ancestors. Okay, but other ancestors that are around us, non-human being ancestors, we would have a way to engage with them. So the rock is the ancestor in this example. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess I was thinking it was waking up a human. That was symbolism. I'm, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, it's an actual rock that we wake up. Yeah, (laughs) that's cool. Um, what are some other just practical expressions of spirituality? You, you just talked about sweat lodges, Mm -hmm. uh, and that sounds like it's a time of prayer and interacting with ancestors. Um, Yeah. Um, if there's more to say on that, you can talk about that. And then also just other practical ways that your spirituality is lived out. So... A lot of way, I mean, how our spirituality is lived out is just how we live our lives. It's just part of everything we do. Mm-hmm. When I'm taking care of my little sister, when I'm cooking a meal, when I'm driving to see friends, spirituality is always practiced and is always just part of our lives. It's not compartmentalized and segmented to a different, like, on this special day, I go to this special building with these special people to engage in it Mm. it is an everyday practice in all things that we're doing so that's how i practice my spirituality is simply being alive and living this good way yeah how some of the rituals that i participate in and the symbols that i use to express that are rooted in my culture so things like i talked about the medicine people a very common ceremony is um, smudging. So it's the lighting of sage, lighting of cedar, of different medicines. You put on, light them on fire, and the smoke goes up. Mm -hmm. These are mostly seen as cleansing ceremonies. So when you light up the sage and smoke comes up, I can take the smoke and I can I can wipe the bad thoughts that I've been carrying. I, I, I put with my, use my hands to push the smoke over my head. Hmm. And it's like washing away those bad thoughts. Hmm. And then I can uh, push the smoke and like push it over my chest, push it over my heart, and wash away those bad feelings I'm carrying around. Hmm. Some people, some tribes like smudge their whole body because they just, they just feel like they need it. And it's a cleansing ceremony of like, I can, cleanse myself before I go and engage this next activity. Okay. So beginning of a lot of like larger ceremonies, if I'm going to go into the sweat lodge, I'm going to smudge before I go into the lodge. Or it could be before I start my day, before I start my work, 
or before we start this community gathering, uh, before we start this meeting, I want to come in clear without carrying any bad negative thoughts and feelings into it so I can we can have a good meeting. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a, a ritual and symbol we use. The sweat lodge I'll share is the lodge itself and different tribes have different, you know, there's an earth lodge, there's Lakota, there's now that we have like a little dirt lodge and different things. However, it's formed, it's, it is seen as an extension of mother earth. So going into the lodge, you are literally climbing back into the womb of your mother and you're participating in this ceremony hmm. and you're engaging with the community around you. And there's, there's prayers and there's songs and there's community engagement. Different tribes have different ways of doing it. Different, like you go in, you come out with one round. So after like four rounds, six rounds, and each round can mean a different thing or be dedicated to a certain thing. Like for the, a women's round or a men's round where we focus on like the men of our community or the women in our community or a warrior round. We think about those warriors that are like in the military serving, protecting us and... Mm. Um, themes like that could exist and participate. But the whole idea is going back into the womb of the mother and you participate in this heat and high intensity situation. And you literally have to crawl out of it and you're essentially reborn. Hmm. And you can then engage the world refreshed and renewed. So Climbing into the womb of the mother, I'm guessing that goes back to what you, how you introduce yourself. Your, your mother is very, very integral to your identity. Mm -hmm. So is that what it symbolizes? Cr climbing back into the womb of your mother is this a re-participation um, in your identity in some way? Partially, yes. So a lot of our worldview recognizes the importance women have in our world and in our universe. So there's, I don't know, let's say if there, if, if there is a well or a, a source of knowledge in the, how the universe works, right? If, if that is, if there is such a thing, women are much more in tune to that for several reasons. One, they, they have a natural ceremony once a month after puberty where their body goes through the ceremony and engages in it, taps into this life-making ability. And so they have their own ceremony for that. And the, like, cleansing and getting rid of, of some bad things. They also know what it's like to have a second heartbeat inside of them. Which, so they are much more in tune to understand how Mother Earth works and how when Mother Earth gave birth to us. Oh. So they understand and are tapped into that knowledge much more than we are. So in my tribe, only the men drum during ceremonies. Hmm. And it's because the Creator or the Holy Ones, Navajos, we have the Deneta, the Holy People. The Dedeta gave men the drum because men need help. Because we never know what it's like to have a second heartbeat inside of us. Hmm. So it, drum helps us and symbolizes 
they call it like the, the, the heartbeat of God. So um, it helps us understand and tap into what women already know naturally. Hmm. That is really interesting and cool. Uh, yeah, just this idea that women are more in tune with Mother Nature. And what you said makes sense to me. Um, a Westerner trying to look into it, tries to justify it, tries to make it look, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Our worldview, at least like in the Navajo tribe, um, women are in charge. We're not only matrilineal, we're also matriarch. Mm-hmm. Where the source of power isn't seen in government structures and council meetings and who's the president. That's not who's, that's not who's running the nation. That's not who's running. Who's running the family? That's where the source of power is. Women own all the property, traditionally, culturally, own all the property. So they say like a Navajo divorce is when you come back home, you see your work boots sitting outside the door. I mean, she's done with you and you can kind of move on. Hmm. Like there isn't the sense of like, this is the man's house and all these like weird toxic masculinity thoughts and like the women own everything and they're in charge and they're the ones that are, and it's always the eldest female that runs the family the matriarch that makes the deciding choice on a lot of times a lot of decisions and leads the family and what we should do or we should not be doing hmm. so yeah there's a total different perspective for Westerners, it like you said, it very much is like who has the most power over the government, over the businesses, over just money, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the family within your Native American culture is kind of the heartbeat of life. It sounds mm-hmm. like, and that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> so. You mentioned sweat lodges. You mentioned the burning of sage and other medicine people. Mm-hmm. Are there any? You mentioned the drum. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in because you you mentioned the drumming, and I got to witness some chanting as well mm-hmm. uh, at an event that you invited me to. So, what's the significance of that? Yeah. So. Songs are important to our community. Our songs don't have, a lot of it is like you said, it's chanting. It's not direct translation into like, it's not, it's not Navajo words that are being sung. And then it's translated into a lot of it. Is, there's a lot of chanting in it. But these songs are significant and they're powerful. And the songs itself are medicine. They're their teachings, their stories tied to it, and they're almost memorializing a moment in history. And we can draw on that moment in history for strength, for healing, for guidance and direction. Songs are used in our ceremony as our way of engaging spirituality. So we will offer songs to the Creator, to the holy people, to the Dineh, as we're singing. Um, the story I told earlier about my grandma and the snake, we offered the snake some songs. When I'm honoring somebody, somebody just graduated or did something very significant and good in our community, 
I'm honoring them with a song. If I come to a house, I never come empty handed. If I don't have anything, I can offer a song. Hmm. And that's something. So it's a tangible thing that's in our community. It's, you know, very much a part of who we are and different tribes will have their own songs, but we'll all share songs. Mm -hmm. So my grandfather, who was a roadman for the Native American church, the NAC, the peyote way, he had all these songs, all these peyote songs. And then when he had, as he engaged with other people, other tribes, they would give him songs and then we had songs. They had more songs that he could sing. And it wasn't a sense of ownership of like, this is our tribe song and you can't sing it. It's like, I'm gifting it to you. And then when you sing it, you recognize, like I'm recognizing my um, Arapaho friend gifted me this song. I'm going to sing it in, in the way that he taught me. And then I sing it. So recognizing that where it comes from and everything and how it's shared. There are songs that I would say they're songs they were given to us by the holy people. Mm -hmm. And then there's songs that are created and given in a moment by man. There's songs that are given to us by different other sacred entities like um, the bear or the elk will have their own song that they'll give human beings to help them in certain parts of their journey. So I don't know if I can directly define it, but I can, I, that's what I have to say about songs. Yeah. Okay, cool. One other thing that you said that was intriguing to me was at one point we were talking about kind of the essence of morality, kind of what it is within native American spirituality. And we talked about balance and part of being unbalanced is getting sick. But then you mentioned that sickness symbolized, or maybe literally, the snake around your uh, grandmother, I believe it was, was not good or bad. So in my mind, I see a contradiction there. I don't think there is, and I want you to explain to me why there's not a contradiction there. And just expand a little bit more on why... Why is sickness, why is death not a good or bad thing? It just is. Mm. That's a good question. Here's how I would respond. Because one, I don't know if I have an answer to the question. That's Because fair. when I talk about, again, when we talked about, there's this, in the Western world, there's a science of theology and you can ask questions and you can figure it out. And there's, there's always a smart white guy that has an answer to everything. Yeah. There's, there's a reason <laughs> there, there needs to be reason. There need, it needs to be sound. It needs to have fit in categories yeah. to then make sense for us. This is the way that it was taught to us. And this is just the way it is. Mm -hmm. We're not taught that things are good and bad. We're taught this is just how things are. And, trying to fit it into another culture's worldview that said there has to be good or bad, or it has to be something, or there's negative, and, and how, how do we balance and weigh it out? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have an answer for that. And I don't know if I should. I think I could probably say and talk enough things to try to make it fit into another worldview. But to us, like, we don't ask those questions. 
is not part of our how we practice and engage. Like I just know the I know the way these things are. It's just the worldview I have. I can probably go through if I like if I were to if I were to work on it. Like if we had an exercise and think about like okay, let's talk about death. What are good and bad things about it? We could probably come up with some list lists, some things. Yeah. Yeah, but that exercise isn't would not benefit me or my community at all. Yeah, well, then right. let's not do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. yeah, it's just a di very different idea because within something like Christianity, and I keep bringing Christianity up because that's how I was brought up, um, death is the enemy. Uh, sickness is the enemy. And there's this narrative that offers a way out of it, you know, eternal life um and within native american spirituality death is not the enemy it's just a part of life sickness is not the enemy it's just the way it is and that's something that i can really appreciate but it's also something that's very different from how i grew up thinking mm -hmm. about it so just thought i would yeah, yeah. so i think the uh so Western Christianity is tied to a lot of Western thoughts, and there's themes of power, control. Like I have um, things like I like man has dominion over all the earth and all the animals and all the resources. So there's a linear, hierarchical way of thinking, mm -hmm. and as, as the top of the food chain. Man gets to like engage the world the way he wants. Think of like I can overcome death, I can overcome sickness. Mm -hmm. Instead of finding a balance with it and engage with it, so this is these are more cultural differences that are linked to spirituality and how we practice. But it's like I would say the roots the differences more culturally than spiritually. Yeah. So, like most people on Earth, your beliefs change over time. So, mm -hmm. I'm interested in hearing your spiritual beliefs today and how that has changed and why. Yeah. So, uh, up to this point, we've been talking about the community that I come from and from their perspective on um, what our spirituality our engagement with the supernatural is like what our ceremonies are and so that's you know that's the story i've been telling thus far how myself if we were to switch lenses and mm -hmm. let's adopt an individualistic perspective and talk about me as a individual if there is such a thing Let's imagine that there is such a thing as J.R. the individual. And, and I had a personal story of how I engage with this community sense of spirituality. I would say that growing up, I was connected to the source. I was on the reservation. So our ancestors, as far as like my elders and 
the community was there. So my my dad's dad was a roadman for the what we call the Native American Church, which is a federally recognized church um, that has some teachings of Jesus and uses the Bible, but it's really a Native American religion, more or less, if you were classified as such. Mm-hmm. Where we use peyote, which is a hallucinogen, um, a cactus bud, we so we take this, we take peyote as part of our ritual, prayers, ceremonies, everything, and so we were we were part of that. We we participated in ceremonies, um, took the medicine, and was part of that. Um, but we'd also attend the Catholic Church. So it was like Friday and Saturday we did ceremony, and Sunday we did Catholicism. And Catholicism made room for that and was like okay with it. So it was the, hmm. at least on the reservation, it was a weird. I mean, I don't know. It, it's weird in the larger sense. It's not common, but for us, it was like everyone did this. Uh-huh. It was a duality of of beliefs that kind of coexisted together in our family, and that's what we did. I didn't really take much interest into it. I wasn't, um, didn't think too hardly of it. I just, this was just the way it was and it was the way we did. And it wasn't until later on, I was 10, 11 years old, when we then converted into a more charismatic Christian church, the Pentecostal church, the Church of God, mm-hmm. and began some more... <clears throat> radical evangelical belief systems and engaging in the church in that way. Mm-hmm. And that church didn't have a way to, uh, it didn't have a path that allowed me to also be native. Didn't allow me to also participate in ceremony. So then it was oh, just, okay. you're just Christian, you're not native. Um, and then we, there's terms we could use like the Western captivity of the gospel. The gospel message is interpreted through a Western lens and then therefore imposed when religion is imposed on people, they impose the culture and the worldview as well and say that that is Christian. That is the way you need to practice your religion. It needs to be interpreted through a Western lens. So to be a good Christian is to be a good Westerner with linear thinking, compartmentalized thought processes, individualism, all those things. Mm-hmm. So then we, as a family, we engage in this. And in the background of all of this, reservation life is very hard. So mm-hmm. extreme poverty, 70, 80% unemployment on the res, a lot of drugs, a lot of violence and um, different abuses there. And we can go into that another time. Mm. But I, so I wasn't sheltered from it. I was all a part of that. My family, um, when we were living in Section 8 government housing, we did for a little bit, but then we got kicked out of it because my dad was a drug dealer. Mm. So then we lived in this trailer that was parked next to my grandma's house. And uh, the trailer was this like mobile home that wasn't hooked up to anything. So there was no running water, no electricity. We had an extension cord from my grandma's house into our trailer. And that was our form of electricity. Hmm. So we hauled water from the well, built a fire every morning, lived in this trailer. 
in the winter times, my dad would put the plastic on the on the windows, and we'd all sleep in the living room. Wow! And so extreme poverty, right? I grew up in. Mm -hmm. At the same time, my dad was also my dad went to the boarding schools. We hear so much about and went through different his own different type of abuse and results of colonization happened to him like he was like i said he was a town drug dealer so he was involved in a lot of drugs a lot of alcohol problems mm -hmm. and that and he had a lot of mental health issues which led to him being very violent mm -hmm. so we had a lot of domestic violence and abuse and uh, i won't go into that as like you know for listeners who are you know maybe triggered by some of those stories um but it was it led to a not happy upbringing Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was 12 years old and I was done with it. I got, had enough of life, enough abuse, enough of all these different things. And so then I wanted to end my life. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I, I gave up. And I, I remember this Pentecostal pastor telling me that I just needed to give my life to Jesus. And so then I cried out and I, in my prayer, because I was just, I was like, and it essentially was like, Jesus, I'm done with life. I don't want my own. If you want it, here it is. Mm -hmm. And in that moment of complete surrender to a higher power to like, I just, I'm done with trying to figure out everything out on my own. Yeah. I remember having a spiritual encounter that I don't know how to describe. The best words I can put to it is I felt something hug me. And to a person that like never, you know, there's not a lot of love in my life with the abuse and um, results of that abuse going on with my family. Mm. That was very significant. Yeah. And uh, I like to think, and I phrase from that point on, I am pursuit of what that I am in constant pursuit of what that was. Yeah. That sense of peace, that sense of love, that sense of acceptance of so much. It was sort of like if I were to ever experience Honjon, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it. I wanted it for me, I wanted it for my family, I wanted it for my community. Mm -hmm. In the moment because I was part of this Pentecostal church and because I prayed this prayer beforehand, I interpreted it as, wow, Jesus came to visit me. Was it Jesus? Today, I don't know. I don't know if that's a word or language I would use. Yeah. Um, as much as I had a supernatural experience with the divine. Mm -hmm. And in a time where I needed it. So then I began to surrender to a higher power and then operate as such as there were real supernatural things around me. There was sacredness. There was when I wasn't strong enough to handle things, mm -hmm. there was help. So at the time, immediately, I threw myself into the Christian world and very, became very Pentecostal, mm -hmm. studied the scripture. But again, it was Western, 
Christianity. So I call it like my colonized years because I was very, I threw myself and interpreted how I need to live life through. Like I need to be a good Westerner. I need to be a good linear thinker and practicer of these things. Yeah. So I did. And it wasn't until my college years where two significant phases began. One was my deconstruction phase. Deconstructing, how do I believe this? Why do I believe this? Whereas the source of like just going through that process itself. How do I know what I know? And why do I choose to know that and believe this? Yeah. And then there became my, we call the decolonization phase. So colonization is all the programming that is done all around us through media, through policy, through just how we teach history, what do we think is, if there's a such thing as ordinary people, you know, what's normal, and thinking like the, those programmings I grew up with. Mm-hmm. How do I get rid of all those programs? How to decolonize it yeah. and then re-indigenize it? And understand and recognize that what I was taught as a child in ceremony in the worldview as a Native American was sound, was legitimate, was, wasn't savage, it wasn't wrong, it wasn't primitive. But in fact was like a way I could be. And that was okay. Me being okay with that and living my life that way. And so it affected all areas of my life, including how I engage the supernatural, how I engage my spirituality, and began this process to an attempt to decolonize my Christian faith at the time hmm. and to re-indigenize it. Yeah. So it was a whole movement I ran into, the native-led contextualization movement. And in this movement, I met different leaders, different elders who practice who practiced Native American contextual worship. Folks like Richard Twist, Terry LeBlanc, Randy Woodley, who helped me see the world differently. But it was also this time I really started re-engaging what it meant to be Native, and I couldn't just be Native culturally because we, again, we don't compartmentalize one thing. You have to take it all so then in re-engaging in native american spirituality spiritual practices um going to elders and learning these stories learning about the different ceremonies and engaging with them and so now when tough times come when the world seems against me and all these things are stacked up and i'm like i don't know i don't know what i can do i still practice prayer as far as a calling for help into the divine mm-hmm. and i don't fully understand i fully don't know what it is that i'm calling to i don't know if i can describe but i know that i, I surrender to and i surrender to a higher power mm-hmm. and asking for help asking for guidance and i think it comes i think there's response i think there's a, a relationship there that i have mm-hmm. i've come to a point as i'm deconstructing, decolonizing, and rethinking through things. I don't know what to do with this Christianity that was a big part of my life. Yeah. I don't know if I'm still in that camp or if I'm not. 
and I don't know if it matters. I've definitely found a community of people that I engage with and practice ceremony with. Hmm. So I um, currently I'll, I'll attend Sweat Lodge here in the area. I will, uh, different elders see me as a spiritual leader in the community. Um, I'm asked to do blessings before uh, meetings or events or I somebody, uh, if there's a funeral, I'm invited to funerals and do blessings and as well as people ask me for spiritual guidance on things. Mm -hmm. So I might engage in that way. I don't know what category we want to put it in. Some people will say like, yes, you're still a Christian. You still do these things, but it's just a more liberal interpretation of it. Some people say, no, you're not. You're just totally, um, sounds like you're just totally native and you've abandoned Christianity and everything. I, I don't know. I just know that I'm enjoying the mystery of it and enjoying not knowing, living in the ambiguity of it all. Because mm -hmm. in that, in the not knowing and just having faith, I find comfort. Hmm. I'm really glad that you're at a place where you're going back to your roots. You're figuring out, like you said, that, that phase of decolonizing your mind, not just within Christianity, but it seems like in all aspects of your life and embracing who you are as a Native American, but also it sounds like you are open to other belief systems, or maybe not belief systems, that's not the right word, but just uh, you're open to Christianity, for an example, because you had that experience through Christianity. Yeah, I, I would probably phrase it, I am comfortable coexisting alongside a diversity of ideas, a diversity yeah. of beliefs. Yeah, and I think being comfortable with mystery and admitting that you don't have all the answers, but continuing to engage in it is a very admirable thing because a lot of people, I think, when they don't know everything, they don't have that linear thought process and explanation for everything that they're experiencing. They just abandon all spirituality and that's not what you're doing you're finding a way to engage in it while having an element of mystery and you're true to your identity and i think that's really admirable and cool so yeah thank you yeah. i appreciate that it's it's a journey i recognize everyone's on a different journey not my own i don't feel a need to impose my journey or my learnings or my thought process on anyone else. Mm -hmm. I appreciate everyone being on there and wrestling through it as I've wrestled through mine and I continue to wrestle through mine. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's an ending to this, if I'll ever like arrive and figure anything out and become all knowing. I don't really have a desire to. I just enjoying being on this journey and as I'm in this journey, what is best for my community, for my family, and being okay with that. Yeah. 
but you mentioned that you do get pushback from people within the Christian community saying that you're not one of us. How do you usually respond to that? I would say that I try to be understanding. When I was young and I had this abusive father, I said my dad is mean and angry and I didn't understand it. Later on, as I began to educate myself and understand what colonization did to him, what the boarding schools did to him, what they did to his father, and I began to learn about mental health and the things that were not right as a, as a result of the trauma he went through and the pressures he was under with no support, no way economically to provide for his family. or to, oh, So I began to understand a little bit more and have more sympathy towards his abuse. Not that it was justified or that he was allowed to do it because no person should be harmed that way. But at least I, I, I saw it in a different context. Hmm. And so now that I get pushback. People will say I'm wrong. People will ar want to argue with me for a number of different reasons, not even just about spirituality, but a lot of things. Yeah. I try to have sympathy and understanding. They're at a place in their journey that, you know, I'm not there with them. I don't feel a need to try to convince them. I don't feel like I need to set them straight. They're angry. They're mad. That doesn't need to affect my life. Hmm. I've had a, I've dealt with a lot of anger and pain in my life. And I don't need any more. So when somebody wants to argue and disagree or something, like I just, I really don't care. Um, I think that they can have their opinion. They can call me wrong. They can say rude and nasty things. Or they, they agree with me. Like, it just doesn't bother me anymore. Like, my... It doesn't shake my faith. It doesn't mm. challenge me in those ways. I am pretty confident in my ceremonies and my practices. Mm. Well, JR, thank you so much for being on the Project Matter podcast. It was... Really good talking with you. I know it's been a journey getting here, um, but I'm very thankful for it, and uh, I'm thankful for this conversation. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Drew. And I'll end with this final thought. There's a, there's a prayer or a blessing called the Beauty Way, the Navajos, and we pray. Okay. Um, so it finishes with the phrases, Hojonoko Hasling, in beauty may I walk. So it's, the prayer goes, let beauty be before you, beauty be behind you, beauty be above and below, and every step that you take, let it be finished in beauty. 
Hojonoko hustling, Hojonoko hustling, Hojonoko hustling, Hojonoko hustling. Thank you so much. Thank you. As always, you're invited to make your way on over to the Project Matters social media pages and join the larger conversation that is happening regarding this topic. Thanks for listening.